Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, for your calling us into your kingdom to be your children through the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we're so thankful, Lord, that indeed you have given a fountain, Lord, that gives life. And Lord, we pray that this morning through this teaching, God, that we would drink deeply, uh, Lord, from your fountain of life, through the spirit, through your word. So Lord, enable the teaching this morning, God, to do just that. God, to build up your people. God, to make even more clear the sense of our identity as children of God. And Lord, for those who do not know Christ, that God, that they would see the way home to you. And so Lord, would you bless this time and would you strengthen uh, your people through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, I've entitled The Teaching of Christian Road Map. A Christian Road Map. And while following this road map, I think it's important for us to be up for the challenge, to be down to serve, and right to praise. I think those three points are important for us to grasp this morning, that we need to be up for the challenge, we need to be down to serve, and we need to understand the right to praise. You see, when you came to faith, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, when you came to faith, you were probably a lot like me. You responded to the good news of the gospel. You responded to the beauty and the grace of Jesus being offered to you in your sinfulness, in your desperate need for salvation, you responded to it because of the enormous benefits that we have in Christ. Sins forgiven, adopted into the family of God, an eternity with God. And those things drew you in. Those things were good news to your soul. Those things are to be praised and are to be received joyfully. But then, as you begin to live your life, as you begin to try to live out your identity as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, turning your back on sin and this world, you were met with difficulty, with adversity. And you thought, man, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for all the benefits. I didn't sign up for the adversity and the trials and the challenges and the difficulty and the difficult people. I did not sign up for any of that. You may have been tempted to respond like that weird creature from the Lord of the Rings, Smeagol, after he was captured by the soldiers of Gondor. Master tricks us. Now, you may not go that far to, to say that God has kind of, you know, tricked you or kind of led you astray. But in your heart, you probably thought, man, I really did not sign up for any of this. But 
we have the word of God right before us. And in the word of God, Jesus says, don't be surprised. I'm not here to trick you. There are some challenges. There are some difficult things that you must embrace. Because here's the reality. If you are going to follow Jesus, you have to embrace the process of him making you fit for his eternal kingdom. And that is a process. That is a journey. And that's why you've got to be up for the challenge, down to serve, and right to praise him. So let's look again at the first six verses where we see this challenge being drawn out even more clearly to the disciples. To the point to where they responded by saying, Jesus, increase our faith because this is hard. Increase our faith. Jesus ain't trying to trick you. Mm -mm. But he is trying to make you fit for his eternal kingdom. And so in those first six verses, the challenge, the challenge that we must be up for is the challenge to care for and to love the souls of our neighbors. And he breaks it down in three different ways, the challenge here. First, there is the challenge specifically and directly pointed to Christian teachers and pastors that you would be faithful to teach God's word accurately. That you would stand on God's word, that you would not give your word, but that you would teach God's word. And then secondly, and this applies to all of us, in caring for the souls of our neighbors, that you would be up to the task of loving your brother, loving your neighbor enough to rebuke him. When he sins. Right? Rebuke seems so harsh. And you heard it as a harsh response. But it's a loving response. It's not about being harsh. It's the responsibility to care for and love your neighbor that you would rebuke him when he sins. And then thirdly, the challenge of forgiving him. Even when he sins against you multiple times. And not in multiple ways, but in the same way. That you would still forgive. Are you up for that challenge? Are you up for it? And so, the disciples hearing this. Man, we need more faith. How could we possibly do this? But looking at that first challenge where it is directed to teachers, to Christian pastors. He says, temptations to sin are sure to come. In other words, this world has been corrupted by sin. It falls short of sin. Now, the question you ought to be asking is what is sin? Well, according to 1 John, sin is the transgressing of the commandments of God. So in this world... There are multiple ideas, thoughts, ways of living that transgress the commandments of God. And there will be numerous temptations to get you to do the same. But as teachers, 
Woe to the one through whom they come. You cannot do that. You cannot teach people to transgress God's commandments. You cannot relax God's commandments. So, as a Christian pastor, the challenge is to speak plainly where the scriptures have spoken very plainly about what God requires of his people. There are passages in scripture that are not in line with the way our culture values things or what our culture holds to, or what our culture is pushing upon young people. There are ethics, there are sexual ethics, there are ideas about marriage, there are ideas about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, when life begins. There are all kinds of ideas, and the scripture has spoken plainly on these things. So plainly, you do not need a seminary degree. You do not need to understand the original languages. It is so plain and clear, and so we must stand on those. Or, or Jesus said, judgment, woe to the one. Woe. It'd be better if a millstone be tied around his neck. The millstone was used to to grind up grain. If you, speaking again directly to teachers, speaking to myself, if you do not stand on the word of God, if you do not proclaim the word of God, as God has plainly declared it to his people, woe to you. And then, as the people of God, we too, standing on the plain Meaning of scripture. We don't need to dance around and what if it meant this or what if it meant that. There are some passages of scripture that are difficult to understand. But there is a lot that is very plain and clear. And so he says, woe to the one who would compromise on God's word. Who would shrink back from God's word. Who would be ashamed of God's word. Now, people, when we step into some of these conflicts here, I mean, people are quick to pit Jesus against Paul as if they are not on the same team, as if Paul wasn't appointed to be his mouthpiece to the church. And so Paul said this, but Jesus didn't say that. Where did Jesus, and it just betrays an ignorance that, Jesus is the word of God, that Jesus, according to Ephesians 2, that there is the prophets and the apostles, and he is the chief cornerstone. He pulled them together. They prophesied his appearing and gave the people clear commandments on what to do to prepare them for his arrival. He came, now he ascended into heaven, and then he sends out his apostles to proclaim to the people, how to be ready, how to be fit for the kingdom of God. Don't pit him against his apostles. We must stand on the clear teaching. We must not lead the young ones astray, he says. And when it says, causing the little ones to sin, it's not just little children, but it's Jesus echoing the Father's perspective of you, his people. You are his children. 
And he has given you his word. And he intends to use his word to build you up, to fit you for his kingdom. You must be up for the challenge. A quote from Martin Luther, he said this, If I profess with the loudest voice and with clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except the little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. What is he saying? You know where the temptation is to back away, to not speak up, and to compromise. And so you run away from it. He says that's not being loyal to Christ at that moment. That's not embracing the challenge to care for the souls of your neighbors, to speak the truth and love. And so Jesus presents this challenge to teachers. And the next, a challenge that applies to teachers, but also applies to all of us. In verse 3, he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And some of us like to rebuke others because we just, we're just mean-spirited. We, it comes easy and natural. And all of our angst flows with it. We're mad at someone. Doesn't matter if it's something that's not really a commandment of God. Maybe it's just like a preference thing. Something that's not really in the scriptures. We, we're quick to rebuke and to call people out on that. And others of us, we hate even the word rebuke. We hate the idea of confronting someone about something wrong that they've done. And we hate being confronted ourselves. But this is a challenge to care well for the souls of those around you. You got to figure out how to do this. You may be responding like the disciples in this moment. Lord, increase my faith. This is hard. Maybe for the one who loves to dish out rebukes, increasing your faith is learning how to do it from a heart of love and actual concern and care for the person. And for those of you who hate doing it, is learning to care for the other person more than you care for your own soul. Because sometimes we hide behind this fact that I'm just not that type of person and you know, I'm not confrontational like that. I don't like conflict. And really what we're saying is I don't like to feel that way more than I care about helping the other person. Be restored back to God. So you got to die to yourself regardless of which one is your tendency. And you got to be up for this challenge. But he also says that you need to forgive your brother. He says that if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And we think that this is crazy because that's what the disciples said. They didn't say that. Luke doesn't record them saying that, but we can read between the lines. Lord, increase our faith is the next statement from them. What are they saying? This sounds crazy. Like, how do we do this? 
How do we forgive someone who has sinned against us seven times in the same way? And when they come to us for forgiveness, we're supposed to just forgive them and forget about it? How is that even possible? Because here's the thing. We, when someone does that, when someone wrongs us, we like holding on to that angst and that offense. It's deep in our hearts. We want them to get what we think they deserve. Because if we felt pain, we want them to feel pain. Ooh, you need to feel it. Right? And we know that's not right. And so we'll say, you know, well, I, I forgive you this time. And then they come back again the second time and the third time. And Jesus said, all the way up until the seventh time. And then we're like, mm, this isn't sincere, so I'm not going to forgive. He doesn't say, check to see if they are sincere. Does he? He doesn't say that. He says, forgive them. Oof. This is a challenge. But you know what? Fundamental to our nature as Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, fundamental to your nature is that you know you are a forgiven soul. That the cross is what you deserved and far worse. And that you came into the kingdom of God because God forgave you. Forgave you of your sin. And so, when you're in these situations, what ought to come out of you is the very character and nature of God. A willingness to forgive Reminded of the fact that God took your sin and cast it into a sea of forgetfulness. Separated you from it as far as the east is from the west. Not thinking of you in terms of your past sin. Not labeling you in terms of your past sin. Not saying, oh, there's the angry man. That's my child. That's the angry child right there of mine. Oh, nope, nope, that's the, that's the very immoral child of mine right there, the very lustful and adulterous child of mine right there. Nope, nope, child, son, daughter. Doesn't think of you in that way, doesn't label you in that way. And so now, if that's our father, if that's our spiritual DNA, when we are wrestling with this, we yield to the true spiritual and eternal identity. We forgive. We're willing to forgive. But again, I know this is a challenge because the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, I know your Bible might have Kind of a subtitle there in the chapter. And what happens is you think that the subject has changed. But it hasn't. The subject is still dealing with the challenge. The challenge of caring well for the souls of your neighbors. The truth 
being willing to stand in there and, and lovingly engage in relational conflict and be willing to forgive. The subject has not changed. And so when he says uh, that if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to a mulberry tree, be cast into the sea. He's talking about the kind of faith that allows you to endure this challenge, to take on this challenge. This is not some prosperity teaching like, hey, if you want a new car, if you want the promotion, all you need is faith. No, what he is saying here, it's not about the size of your faith. It's not about the supposed intensity or emotion and passion of your faith. It is about the object of your faith. If Jesus is the object of your faith, you can face this challenge. You are more than up for this challenge. And what seems impossible to you, will prove to be more than possible because of the object of your faith, Jesus. I love it that he says a mustard seed. If you have in sight the, the true Jesus, the Son of God, man, I don't care how much fear, I don't care how much the circumstances seem overwhelming. I don't care how hard things appear out there. If you just see him and set your confidence and your trust in him, you'll get through it. You'll do it. You'll be able to endure. You'll be able to extend forgiveness. You'll be able to stay in that relationship and work it out. You'll be able to stand on the truth when all the world seems to be against it. Following Jesus, again, it's about embracing a process of being made fit for his eternal kingdom. And so moving onward here, we see we must be up for the challenge then we must be down to serve. So Jesus tells a small little parable. He says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Again, the subject has not changed. He's still dealing with the challenge. And so he's presented it to them to be up for the challenge. But now he's addressing their attitude, being down to serve humility. Having an attitude of a servant before the Lord. Now, if you are the Lord's servant and you're called to forgive your brother who comes to you and repents, no matter how hard it is, you do it and you, you do it knowing that that is your duty.
Some of you may be familiar when we covered a similar parable in Luke chapter 12. Where Jesus talks about a servant. Uh, Jesus talks about a wealthy man and his servants. And the servants waiting up all night, waiting for the master to return. And when the master returns, he has the servants take a break and he serves them. And it's this amazing picture of the grace of God that takes you off of the rat race of life, the striving after trying to please God, but the grace of God bringing you into his kingdom, forgiving you of your sin, bestowing upon you all of his amazing graces, none of which you ever earned or deserved. But in this story, it's not about the grace of the master. It's about the heart attitude of the servant. You've got to be down to serve. You've got to take a humble posture, mindset before the Lord. That is the only way you'll be able to see God do great things in and through your life. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it's okay for you to think less of yourself, knowing how much your Heavenly Father thinks of you. You see that? If you think more of yourself than you ought to, then serving is a challenge. Extending forgiveness is a challenge. I don't, I don't have to forgive this person. I don't deserve what they're doing to me. I deserve better. I deserve this. I deserve this happiness. I deserve this, whatever it is you think this is. You fill in the blank. That I deserve mentality. Or this looking for a reward mentality is what makes us unfit for the kingdom. There are rewards. There are kingdom rewards. There are eternal rewards. No doubt about it. But ultimately, our greatest reward is him. Being with him. Having him. And so J.C. Ryle, he said it this way. He said, you will not find and feel that all the Lord's ways are ways of pleasantness unless you labor in all your ways to please the Lord. To please the Lord. So you're able to forgive your brother seven times when he sinned against you seven times because you aren't doing it for yourself. You're doing it for the Lord. You're able to take on the task that no one else wants to do because you're not doing it for yourself or for anyone else. You are doing it for the Lord. And then when you're done, you realize I've only done what was required of me. I don't deserve a special parade or a special ribbon. I've only done what was required of me. I like to tell it like this. Sometimes the dads or the men in the room will 
kind of laugh at the fact that when they were little, and maybe, you know, you could probably relate, relate to this, some of you guys, when you helped your dad working on something and he just had you hold the flashlight? You ever had your dad yell at you for holding the flashlight, right? Hold the flashlight, point it in this direction. No, 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 over here, hold steady, man, right? And, and we, we all laugh at that because it was like, man, I, all he had me do was hold the flashlight. I didn't really even do much, right? And you're like, this is, this is dumb. I could be doing something else rather than holding this flashlight. Well, think about it in the grand scheme of things. God does not need us to accomplish anything on this planet. In reality, all that we are doing is holding the flashlight. We are not doing anything special. We're just holding the flashlight. And we need the attitude of joy that I'm with the Father and I'm holding the flashlight. Wow. I'm holding the flashlight. God is in the business. Jesus said that he is making all things new. Not me. Not you. Are you making all things new? No, you're not. We are here by his grace. Every breath we take is by his grace. So let's have the attitude of a humble servant, realizing that, man, God is good to even bring us into this. And just like J.C. Rowell said, until you labor at trying to please God in all things, not to earn your salvation, but out of a delight, out of a sense of gratitude of who he is, until you learn to labor in that way, you will struggle to see just how good God is in all things. And this is, this is a very important fact. And it leads us to the next point I want to make. So we've got to be up for the challenge. We've got to be down to serve. And then we look at the story of the, the ten lepers that were healed. We've got to see that, man, we have a right to praise him. That's what this story is about. As he's making his way to Jerusalem, right, there are ten lepers. They're outside of the villages. They're not allowed to be in with the rest of the people because of a fear, a concern, a legitimate fear and concern that the disease might spread. And so they're taking the sick and they're quarantining the sick, right? So they, you, you guys stay out here so that the whole village isn't overcome and overrun by leprosy or some type of skin disease that in that particular time and period could take a person's life. And so these people being out there, I mean, it's a very lonely existence. It's a very sad and, and, and depressing existence. And in reality, it is a picture of how sin cuts us off from the presence of God. Now, that's not to say that these people have sinned because... Uh, and that's what has brought leprosy on them. But it is a picture of, look, sin is the terminal disease that has cut you off from a holy God. And apart from his healing and cure of that disease, you can't be restored to him. And so these people being out there, outside of the village, cut off from fellowship with the rest of the people. 
have formed a little bit of a, a community in their loneliness and their sense of rejection, identifying with one another. And they hear of Jesus passing by their way. And it doesn't say that they know a ton about him. I mean, I'm willing to guess that they don't know a ton about him. They've heard stories of him. They've heard of the things that he has done. They've heard that he is a great teacher and that he's a prophet and that he's a healer. They've heard these things. And they don't know what to do, but something in them is desperate for God. And I know that some of you can relate to that. You've been in that place where, man, you are just desperate for God to do something. You can't even explain it. You know that you need him. You know that life isn't the way it ought to be. And you just want God to do something, to show up, to, to impact your life. And they can't even formulate their requests. They just simply cry out. Lord, have mercy on us. Life has been hard. Life has not been fair to us. This world has not accepted us. Lord, have mercy. Whatever it is, whatever your mercy looks like, have, have it on us. We need some of that. So they're desperate. And what does Jesus do? He says, go and show yourselves to the priest. He's just walking by. These guys are crying out, have mercy on us. He looks, go and show yourselves to the priest. And then he keeps going. Their desperation, their loneliness, their sense of rejection, their agony, their, their hope of some type of relief and deliverance is met with, go show yourselves to the priest. Why? What? What does that mean? What a risk. Are you serious, Jesus? The priest, they may stone us before we even get to the temple. They may have us put down for, for, for potentially threatening an outbreak of leprosy among the people. Go show yourselves to the priest. Well, that phrase is important because the priest had a responsibility to test to see if an individual had leprosy and to test to see whether or not an individual had actually been healed or been cured of their leprosy. And so he says, go. And what he implies is that if you obey this, you'll find mercy. And these men decide to go. They just go by faith. The little that they know about Jesus, the little that they understand about Jesus, man, they take him at his word and they go. And as they are going, they noticed something is changing. And they were physically healed. They were physically healed. And one of them turns back. He's like, I'm, I'm going to go to the priest, but I got to go back to this man who just gave a word to me and changed my whole life. He just took me from being outside and bringing me inside. 
of the people of God. I got to go. I have a right to praise him. He comes and he falls at his feet and he worships him. And Jesus says, where are the other nine? We're not. There are ten of you who are healed. Now, he's not saying that the other nine didn't have faith. Or that the other nine are like bad guys or anything. The other nine are simply guilty of something that you and I are often guilty of. We want something from God. We plead and cry out to God for it. And sometimes God in his mercy gives it. But what do you do in response? You're so enamored, so distracted by receiving that thing that you wanted. That you forget to praise him for it. Has any of you ever been guilty of that? I've been guilty of that. But this one man, he's... He's all in. He, he wants to know this Jesus more. He, he not only wants to rejoice in this incredible gift of having his leprosy healed, but he also wants to know this man more. So he comes and he worships him. And Luke points out the fact that he is a Samaritan so that we would understand that the gospel was always for the whole world, not just for the Jews. In the West, it's popular for people to say it's a white man's religion, but you see there's not a white man up there preaching, right? It's for the whole world. It's not just for the West. It's for the whole world. That's why Luke points that out. But Jesus says something in closing that's so important. He says to the man, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. That seems a bit redundant. Seems pretty obvious, right? He's already been healed. So what is Jesus saying there? Again, this is not prosperity talk. He's talking about the soul of this individual. You have not only received physical healing, but you've been given salvation. Your faith to come and give worship to Jesus in response to the miracle is a sign that the grace of God has turned your heart heavenward. Your faith has made you well. Your faith in Jesus. The object of his faith was Jesus. And we see it because he is praising Jesus. Not his faith. He's praising Jesus. Some of you are like, what does that mean? Well, some people have faith in their faith. Like, if I just have enough faith, I'll get what I want. If I have the right kind of faith, I'll get what I want. No, it's about the object of your faith. And the object of your faith must be Jesus. It has to be Jesus. Him. Not what you want. Not your ability to get what you want. But Jesus. And that's what this man demonstrates. A faith in Jesus. 
So I want to close with this quote. It says, gratitude is a virtue most worthy of our cultivation. Indeed, in all the Christian life, gratitude is to be planted, watered, dressed, and harvested. Gratitude gets at the very essence of what it means to be created, finite, fallen, redeemed, and sustained by the God of all grace. Ingratitude was at the heart of the fall and at the heart of what's fallen about us to this day. And then the author quotes Romans 1.21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The church following Jesus is about embracing a process of being made fit for his eternal kingdom. He must be up for the challenge. He must be down to serve him. And remember, you're right to praise him. Must Praise and praise flows from a heart of gratitude. I get it. Some of us are a little bit more stoic. We don't like to express emotion. Well, you need to practice expressing emotion to God, rejoicing in God. Parents, with your kids, express it. Rejoice in the Lord. Sing to Him. Worship Him. Give praise to Him. You know, there's an entire book in the Bible that was dedicated to praising God. It's called the Psalms. It was Jesus' songbook, his book of praise. The church needs songbooks that praise God. Now, the problem is with our modern worship today is that we want to praise God in a way that is devoid of clear doctrine and theology. What do I mean by that? So we have this right to praise him. But what we end up doing is placing the spotlight entirely on human experience. And doctrine is kind of in the background. But when you read the Psalms, when you see the hymns that we sang today, doctrine and human experience is just kind of all woven in there. Why? It's not so that we would just feel good about ourselves, but it's about getting us prepared for his eternal kingdom. The right focus of our faith is on Jesus, not our experience. So there's a theological and doctrine that is tied to the praise. It's not just experience. So even in the Psalms, we see they often begin with theological statements, experience, and then they end with theological statements. Very mindful of the theological statements. A lot of modern songwriters don't think about the theology. They just think about the experience. And so sometimes we get what? Bad theology. Bad doctrine coming through the songs. As the people of God praising him 
is so vital. It's so important. It's something we have to do even when we don't feel like it, even in the midst of suffering, and especially in good times. We have to make time for that. You should be singing almost daily, lifting your voice in song saying, glorifying him. That's a part of the process of fitting you for heaven. Well, I just don't like to sing. Well, I just don't like that song. We're not singing about you. Again, the doctrine and the theology, it's about God. We're not singing to you or for you. We're singing to God. It's not about you. It's about him. Praise him. Let it change you. Let it fit you for heaven. All right, I'm closing. You think about this process. What needs to change? Where do you need to make a course correction? When you think about the challenge of caring well for the souls of others, do you stand firm on the word of God? Were you a compromiser? Do you love your neighbor, your brother, your sister enough to appeal to them when they are wrong? Do you love God enough to forgive them even when you don't feel like it. Or maybe a course correction for you is simply checking your attitude about serving God and the various ways in which he's called you to serve. I don't know. Where do you need to make a course correction? What is the spirit pointing out in your life in terms of the course correction as you follow this Christian roadmap of being fit for the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Consider that. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. God, you... You did not want your followers to be surprised at hardship testing, or even being ignorant of the responsibilities you call us to. And God, you make it clear to us that faith, that faith and responsibility are often hand in hand. God, we all fall short. We all are tempted to neglect the very responsibilities that you've given us because we're just simply not looking at them through the eyes of faith, through fixing of our eyes upon you and what you call us to. So God, I'm thankful for your mercy and I'm thankful for your grace that enables us to actually do what you've called us to do. And so, Lord, I pray that as you consider your children here this morning, those who know they need to make course corrections, those who are aware even now 
or where they have not been faithful. God, help them to hear your voice. Help them to hear clearly your commands. And help them to know that you would not call them to anything that wasn't good for their soul and that wouldn't yield your glory in their lives. So I pray you would remind them of these things. I pray you would keep us in this heart and mindset. And I pray that more and more of your character would shine through our lives. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.